Church family, I hope we never take for granted the gifts we have in this church to worship. I'm grateful for the men and women on this stage behind me who do the great work of leading you and I into worship, and I get the privilege of continuing that. As I often say to you, we have been declaring to the Lord of his goodness. Now let's let him declare to us through his word, his good word for our lives. Take your Bible and find the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to find the 37th and the 38th chapter. Okay, here we go. The 37th and the 38th chapter. Him and you grew up playing pinball. Yeah, there's a few of you in here. Some of you never seen a pinball machine. You don't even know there's a rock and roll song about a pinball master on a pinball machine. Well, there's a certain section on a pinball board that if the ball goes over it, it speeds up. It's also true in Mario Brothers, the first video game of my life. For some of you, it was Pac-Man at a Pizza Hut. But there were areas that you could go over and the Pac-Man or the Mario Brother, Mario or Luigi, would speed up and take you faster to try to save the queen. We're speeding up, Jeremiah, just a little bit. And the reason is, is that we've done the hard work. You understand the book. If you're a guest of ours, you don't. That's not your fault. The way we preach God's word here at Church at the Mill is, we believe, most faithful to be in God's word systematically, verse by verse. And we've been in the book of Jeremiah now for well over a year, and it has been quite fruitful and prophetic in our lives. And we've reached a place in the book where everything that Jeremiah has been preaching about is becoming reality. In other words, Jeremiah is called by God to prophesy to his people, Judah, in the capital city of Jerusalem, uh, a, a few decades before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians under a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Jeremiah has to tell the people of God that while the Babylonians are the ones who are coming and who will lay siege to the city, and King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, is the one who's ruling over the geopolitical movement of his kingdom into the area of Judah. Ultimately, this is a part of God's judgment on Judah for Judah's wickedness, for their disobedience. This is not a decision God has come to uh, quickly. He has, over time, demanded and asked and pleaded for repentance, but Judah would have nothing of it. So God sent Jeremiah to preach the prophetic message of judgment. The book of Jeremiah, while it has Jeremiah's struggles in it, the emotional state that he deals with, the book of Jeremiah is not about the unrighteousness of Jeremiah. In fact, I dare say I've learned a lot from Jeremiah's courage, from his commitment to God's word. And even when he struggled, even when he wanted to give up, even when he found himself in the depths of discouragement, he always worked his way back out to the Lord's strength to do the right thing. No, the wicked in the book of Jeremiah are those who will not listen to God, who will not turn to him, who will not ask for forgiveness, who will not openly confess their sin and repent of it. So if you want to categorize Jeremiah into two groups, Jeremiah really falls under the example of the righteous and the rest of Judah, especially the kings who were in control, fall under the category of the unrighteous. And we know that this judgment that's coming upon Judah is not because of righteousness, it's because of unrighteousness. But here's the question. 
When God's judgment comes on the wicked, do God's people also suffer? Do God's people suffer when he brings judgment on the wicked? He's not judging the righteous. He's judging the wicked. Of course, you know the answer. Yes. God's people do suffer at times. And often it is the case that they are caught up in the plight of the wickedness. Now, we might think that in and of itself is an injustice. Why would God not bring Jeremiah in, let Jeremiah preach, and then deliver Jeremiah from the plight of the city? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I can tell you that Jeremiah is a part of a bigger pattern. Think about these men in the Bible. I'll put them on the screen. Joseph of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, the first cousin of Jesus who preached that Jesus was the Messiah, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and the Lord Jesus himself. What do all these men, including Jeremiah, have in common? Well, you could talk about their righteousness and their commitment to God. Of course, the Lord Jesus being uh, uh, in a whole other category. But all these men are men that we read and that we want to emulate. They're not perfect men, but they were righteous men. Yet the common denominator is that every one of them were imprisoned, were treated unfairly, were the recipients of injustice, not for doing what is wrong, but for actually doing what is right. What happens when the servants of God suffer? That's the message I'd like to preach to you this morning from the 37th and the 38th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. When servants suffer. Now, we're going to take this sermon in two parts. Chapter 37 and chapter 38 are really a crash course of the roller coaster of experience that Jeremiah is on. Let me give you a little context with reading the first two verses of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 37. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither, but neither he nor his servants, nor the people of the land, listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Most people believe this is a scholar's subscript. It's a part of the inerrant word of God, but it's added as a summary to say, here is where we are. So we know something about these two verses immediately. Jehoiakim's no longer the king. The Babylonians divided the people politically. There was already a group of people that had been exiled out of Judah and into Babylon. So it wasn't as if the Babylonians weren't always already laying siege. They had just not yet destroyed the city. So Nebuchadnezzar marches in and he takes a lot of the Jews out and he exiles them. Those are people like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, men who were taken out. In fact, Jeremiah in previous chapters tells the people, God's already decided what he's going to do. Don't fight his will. Surrender. You're going to be exiled. You'll be exported. You'll be taken out. But you'll live in Babylon because God is not wishing to wipe you off the face of the earth. He's wishing to bring judgment on the wicked. If you'll admit you're wrong and you'll endure the punishment and the discipline, he will do something beautiful with your life. And is that not the message of the gospel? Nobody gets saved until they realize they're lost. You don't scream for a lifeguard if you can swim. 
You scream for a lifeguard when you can't swim. And so the prerequisite of someone being saved is not for them to tack a little Jesus onto their life or to become a better version of themselves. It is to say, I'm lost. I'm broken. I'm not okay. I need a Savior. Well, the prerequisite of that decision in the Old Testament was to repent and turn to the Lord. And Jeremiah had told them over and over and over and over and over again, they resisted. And then... The rest of the chapter, verses 30, chapter 37 down through verse 38, is like this roller coaster. And Jeremiah, to be quite honest with you, appears to be a little bit of a pawn in it. He's whisked from one place to the other. They whisk him over here. They whisk him over here. They put him in prison. And, and, and in fact, I, I want to be clear. And so to be clear, I, I often try to structure the, the storyboard of what we're seeing in this chapter. So if you'll allow me to do that for just a few minutes, I'm going to apply it to your life. So let's just walk through Jeremiah's last days as Jerusalem is preparing to fall as outlined in chapter 37 and in chapter 38. And notice the inconsistency and the injustice he endures. First, they ask him for intercession. Look at verse 3. Then King Zedekiah sent Jehugal, the son of Shomah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. You ever notice how even the wicked want prayer when things get really bad? Please pray for us. Now, Jeremiah has been preaching uh, for 36 chapters as to what they needed to do. And then when he realizes that the city is going to be destroyed, the king says, oh, please pray for us. Now, at this point, I would love for this to have been a true turning point in Zedekiah's life, but as we'll read, it's not. He's just scrambling. Everybody will tell you they're praying for you on social media. Everybody believes in prayer in a crisis. And what you're going to find in Zedekiah is a parallel between him and many wicked leaders of the world who seem to have a duplicity of mind. They say one thing out of this side of their mouth and the other thing out of that side of their mouth, and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason, and there's not, and there's not ever going to be if their values are not tied to the existence of a creator God who has given us moral absolutes. Once you reject that, then it's a slippery slope as to how you make decisions. Zedekiah says, oh, Jeremiah, please pray for us. And, of course, Jeremiah doesn't respond to that. In fact, there are other places where God says, you don't need to pray, Jeremiah. I've already made my decision. We see that decision in verse 4. Now, Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt. And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about this, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Now, don't get caught up in the details and miss what's happening. Jerusalem's being attacked by the Babylonians from the north. Pharaoh marches out of the south because he's formed a coalition with some of the leaders in Judah. He'd like to be in control. When the Chaldeans, Babylonians, same term, when those armies here, they back up. Well, immediately there seems to be, oh, there's a little hope here. Now, the Bible clearly shows us in previous chapters that Jeremiah had warned Zedekiah and the other kings, don't go making alliances with Egypt. God's already decided. Look how he says it here in verse 5, or excuse me, verse 6. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, thus says the Lord God of Israel, thus shall you say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, behold, 
Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt. In other words, you know that hope you thought you had in Egypt? Not going to happen. They're about to return. But then notice what God says. To help you is about to return to Egypt, its own land. Verse 8. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, the the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. Now listen to how God is so sure of his will. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. In other words, just when you think you could possibly defeat them, you need to understand you're not fighting them. The battle is against the Lord because you have rebelled against him. One of the things you see people do when they walk away from God is they attempt to find hope in other places, and hope can always be found temporarily, but it never lasts. And so they ask him for intercession. Jeremiah gives them a word. And then no sooner have they asked Jeremiah to pray, secondly, they accuse him of desertion. Look down in verse 14. Look what happens. I'll read in verse 11. Now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at that approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. So Jeremiah was a man. He had land there. He was going to try to recoup some of the losses that was taking place. When he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Irijah, the son of Shelemiah, you heard from him earlier, the son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah, prophet, saying, you are deserting to the Chaldeans. So Jeremiah went up north to an area where his land was, and they said, you're trying to leave to go with the Babylonians. You're a deserter. Now look what Jeremiah says in verse 14. And Jeremiah said, it is a lie. I am not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Irijah would not listen to him. They accused him of desertion. And then look what else they did. Third, they seized him and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah and they beat him. They beat him. So they accused him and then they assault him in persecution. Now, now again, some beatings are deserved. This one's not. He's not done anything wrong. And it wasn't humiliating enough and physically uncomfortable enough to beat him, then they decided, we're going to lock him up. They assign him to incarceration. Fourth, that's what they do. In fact, verse 15, and the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, for it had been made a prison when Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days. So he starts free, and they say, oh, pray for us. He prays, they get a word from God. God says, I'm still going to do my will. I've given these people an out. Remember the out. The out is not that you get to keep the city. The out is that you surrender to the Babylonians, that you be marched off, and you'll live. In other words, God is saying, when I decide to discipline, I'm going to carry out my discipline. There's no foregoing that, but you don't have to die. You don't have to be the result of famine or pestilence or die by the sword. You can live. In fact, earlier in the book of Jeremiah, we saw where God says, if you'll surrender to my will and be broken before me, not only will you live, I'll let you thrive in Babylon. Why? Because it is not God's desire to wipe his people off the map. 
It is God's desire to purge his people so that people get right with him so that then they can rightly serve him and be the remnant that God is going to use to bring forth the Messiah. And by the way, having experienced the Messiah, Jesus, that's what he does to us now. When God sees your rebellion in our life, disobedience, his desire is not to take us out. His desire is not to pour out his wrath on us. He poured out his wrath on his son on our behalf. But his desire is to discipline us that we might be brought back into his will and that we might endure what he asks us to endure. Well, they assign him to incarceration. Now, you could stop here and say, man, this guy has been really mistreated. But there's a fifth stage to it. Fifth, they bring him out and say, give us a word from the Lord. See how they're treating him? One minute, pray for me. Next minute, beat him. Next minute, lock him up. Next minute, can you give us a word from the Lord? Look at verse 17. King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in the house. Is there any word from the Lord? <laughs> Jeremiah said, there is. <laughs> Hadn't changed, Zedekiah. It's the same word I've been giving you. There he is. Then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, what wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you have put me in prison? In other words, what is the prophet's job? Well, what's the preacher's job? The preacher's job, the prophet's job in the Old Testament is to take what God has said and make it known to the people. So whether or not you agree with the prophet, you can't accuse the prophet of disobeying or being insubordinate if he's just doing his job. Notice how Jeremiah has not gotten off his message one time. His messaging has not changed. You ever notice how political messaging always changes? You ever notice how everything has a spin on it? This is why I, I think people are hungry for the word of God. I don't want no spin. I want the truth. What is the truth? It does not change. Jeremiah says, yes, I have a word from the Lord. It has not changed. Here is the word from the Lord. You're going to be defeated. And by the way, Zedekiah, why are you allowing these officials to beat me and to lock me up? I've not taken up sword against you. I've not deserted, and I've never backed off of my assignment, which was to stand before you, draw up the courage, swallow the lump in my throat, go past the goosebumps and the sweaty palms, and say, thus says the Lord. And so Jeremiah pleads his case before Zedekiah, which leads to sort of the sixth scene. Just when things have improved a little bit, he got switched to a little bit better prison. They gave him a loaf of bread a day. I guess he liked carbs. I hope they gave him some peanut butter with it. But they gave him a loaf of bread a day. Look what happens in chapter 38, verse 4. He's locked up in verse 21 of chapter 37. So King Zedekiah gave orders and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. And a loaf of bread was given him daily by the baker's street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 38. There's a list of people there. And then verse 2, thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword. So Jeremiah is still preaching. He's in a loose prison. He's allowed to move around inside the temple court. He says, if you stay, you're going to die. The message is go and surrender. Look what happens beginning in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, let this man be put to death. Now, why do they want to kill Jeremiah? Well, remember, they're trying to rally the men to fight the Babylonians. Jeremiah is standing there going, boys, y'all don't need to fight. 
No need to fight. They're going to win. In fact, they're going to win because God has determined that they're going to win, and they're going to win if all of them are injured and in their tent. They're still going to win. That's what he said earlier. You don't need to fight. Well, these officials are saying, he is working against us. How am I supposed to motivate these men to go out and fight this big, powerful army and defend the motherland when the prophet of God is saying, your fighting is futile? And so what happens? Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 4 of chapter 38. The officials said to the king, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. Word for the day there, watch this. If you don't agree with a message from God, you can just attack the messenger. What is Jeremiah telling them? You will live if you'll surrender, because that's God's will. What are they saying? He's not really looking out for our well-being. Have you noticed that what used to be biblical truth in our country is now being called hate language? Have you noticed that if you hold a biblical view of gender, sexuality, marriage, a biblical view of parental guidance within education, a biblical view of law, a biblical view of respect for authority, a biblical view of right and wrong, that all of a sudden, you can be accused of being intolerant. You can be accused of being offensive. Remember, don't let that take you off message. Truth is always truth. God's people are always to be compassionate. We're always to run to the needy, the hurting, and even those who are in the wrong and offer the truth and the love of Jesus. But the truth does not change. They attacked Jeremiah when they said, He's not really looking out for our welfare. But if you know the Lord, you know that Jeremiah is actually telling them the only way to live. And that is to surrender to the will of God. By the way, that's what I would tell someone struggling with an addiction. That's what I would tell someone eat up with an addiction to pornography. That's what I would tell someone who is angry and bitter over being mistreated. That's what I would tell someone who is feeling as though their life has been a series of circumstances where they have not received what is due them. I would say, you can keep fighting all those things or you can keep attempting to build your life on the things the world has to offer. But if you really want to live, you'll surrender to the Lord. Let him begin to deal with that mess in your heart, free you from the burden of being bitter, free you from the burden of trying to bear wrath, trying to bring forth justice, trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and allow the freedom of his love to rule the day in your heart. Life comes on the other side of death in the gospel. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, lose it. Jesus said, no greater love for this than a man lay his life down. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and bottom it. Jesus said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I have to lay my life down before I can truly pick it up in the Lord. And the example is the Lord Jesus who laid his life down and then resurrection and then empty tomb and then victory and then death and the devil are defeated. There is the of the gospel. And when we see this unpacked in Jeremiah's life, they accuse him of this opposition. And then 
they attempt his, educate, his execution. Look what happens in the very next verse in chapter 38, beginning in verse 6. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into a cistern of Micaiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water. By the way, there were no water because the city had been laid siege to. They'd shut the water off. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Now think about the physical representation of the ultimate mistreatment. You've been thrown in a cistern. Uh, 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 a cistern's not a well. There's a little bit of difference there. Cisterns were deep holes, and they're primarily designed to catch, collect, and hold water. So it's not deep enough to hit the water table, though natural moisture can build up. But a cistern would have been deep enough to where you couldn't get out of it. And when it dried up, it would become muddy from the moisture, and he's thrown in a pit, sinking. The Bible says sinking. They did not put him there to change his mind. They put him there to kill him. This is a slow, terrible death of dehydration, starvation, and because of the mud, possibly suffocation. And there he is. Has he done anything wrong? No. Where is God? Where is God when a suffering servant is sinking in the silt of sin? Where is he? And then something happens. Look at your Bible beginning in verse 7. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. And Ebed-Melech went to the king's house and said, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah, the prophet, by casting him in the cistern. And he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you. By the way, it doesn't take 30 men to pick one man up. It takes 30 men to let three or four men pick him up, and 27 of them watch all the guys who already threw him in to make sure they don't circumvent the, the, the saving of his life. Resurrection is what I always say, almost said, which symbolically it really is. My Lord, verse 9, the king these men have done evil. Verse 10, commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, take 30 men from you. Verse 11, so Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, put the rags and the clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so, and they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. He didn't get set free, but he did not Die. Now, we don't know much about Ebed-Melech. Kind of a cool name to say Ebed-Melech, Ebed-Melech, Ebed-Melech. You tried three times. An Ethiopian eunuch, an African, a North African. Some of the earliest Christians were in North Africa. This man obviously feared the Lord God. In fact, next week you'll see in chapter 39, do you know what God does for this righteous man who wanted to take care of Jeremiah? The Bible says in chapter 39, verses 15 through 18, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up at the court of guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. What did he say to him? He said, behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for, no, for harm and not for good, and they shall accomplish before on that day. But he goes on to say, 
but I will deliver you that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. Why? Verse 18. For I will surely save you. You shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. When you're willing to stick your neck out to save someone who's vulnerable, that brings glory and honor to a righteous God. It reminded me about today. Did you know nationally today is Orphan Sunday? It is the day that churches set aside all throughout the nation and the world to bring forward and to ask people to consider the plight of the orphan. So many tremendous stories in our own church. I'll tell you a great one-sentence testimony. We actually have seen a lot of our foster families leave the foster program because they've adopted the children they fostered. That's the best way to leave the foster program. When I think about that, I think about the work that we're trying to do through our foster and adoption care team. In fact, today, when you leave this service, if you've ever wanted to know more about being a foster parent or helping families in our church that want to adopt, you don't have to have room in your home for another child, though I think most of us do, to be a part of this ministry. Next Sunday, right after the service, there's a luncheon. It's free. We'd love for you to attend. You register today in the kiosk as you make your way out. You can also register online if you're worshiping with us online. We would love for our church to follow the lineage of Ebed-Melech who saw somebody in a pit of despair and could not rescue themselves and chose to do something about it. About a decade ago, I read a statistic that broke my heart. It said that the overwhelming majority of Christian families admit at some point they have prayed about adoption. Less than 1% ever adopt doesn't mean that every family in this room can adopt. doesn't mean that every one of you are called to foster care. But more of you are than are going. And my encouragement to you is to pray about that and to think about what God said to Ebed-Melech in his desire to preserve him because he trusted in the Lord. Now, no sooner has Jeremiah been rescued out of this pit, look how it ends. I'll end where it ends and leave us a little bit of time for application. Eighth, they ask him again. For explanation, King Zedekiah, verse 14, sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, you will not surely put me to death. Will you not? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death and deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your Life. Notice what he didn't agree to. He didn't say, as the Lord lives, I will do God's will. Now, the reason I ran through that rather quickly, if you read the rest of the chapter, Jeremiah tells Zedekiah, word for word, the exact same message. The Babylonians are going to win. You need to surrender. And Zedekiah ultimately does not do it. What do you do with this? Like, I know you're not a prophet in Judah. You may say, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a grandmother. Uh, I work in middle management. I'm in medical care. I'm an educator. I'm in retail. I admire people like Jeremiah, but pastor, what you want me to do with this in my life? I work in a fabrication shop. I'm a plumber. What do I do with these kinds of truths? Well, here's the truth. 
if you are serious about following the Lord, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. And, and with that, you need to know some truths. And I want you to jot these down as we close. Here they are. Number one, beliefs and behaviors of the wicked often change. God's will and word do not. When the wicked are judged, they scramble. They look for direction in all places. In the name of inclusivity, everything is determined to be morally correct. This is the moral revolution we are watching unfold in our country. I'm not angry at people who don't know the Lord for acting as if they don't know the Lord. But I also don't want the people who claim to know the Lord to be surprised at how they act. They believe anything and their behaviors will match. Think about all that Zedekiah went through. Pray for me, Jeremiah. Lock him up. Pray for me, Jeremiah. Lock him up. Pray for me, Jeremiah. Lock him up. One to the other, back and forth, he kept going. They don't change. God's will and his word never move. You know something about chapter 37, 38? Jeremiah's messaging never moves. You can never get to heaven without Jesus. It's never okay to disobey God's word or to reinterpret it. It is never okay to hate or hurt someone because they disagree with you or to cancel them out. It's never okay. It doesn't move. Just know that, number two. There are only three. Being faithful to God does not mean we enjoy suffering. I remember hearing sermons of suffering as a young man thinking, is there something you're missing in me when I don't want to suffer? The reality is nobody wants to suffer. Yet what we find in Scripture is that we have real people who are enduring real suffering. They don't have to enjoy it. Jeremiah didn't enjoy it. He said, I'm not a deserter. He pled his case. Didn't work. He stood before Zedekiah and said, Zedekiah, they're going to kill me if you don't let me come to your court of guard, at least have some bread. And then when they threw him in the pit, all he could do is sit there and wait for someone to come and to save him. He didn't enjoy any of that, but he did endure it. He was willing to endure it, which leads to the third and final truth. There's always purpose to our pain. See, this is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that God doesn't waste pain. He doesn't waste pain. I was rereading the book of Colossians for a book I'm working on, and I was reminded what Paul said when he said in Colossians chapter 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. You know what happens when we're willing to suffer even when we're not in the wrong? Well, first it draws us closer to Christ. Then it assures us of our salvation. If you walk away at the first hardship, you need to check the validity of your faith. It also brings future reward. The Bible clearly teaches that we will be rewarded for enduring difficulties. It's a great testimony to the world around us. If Christianity only works when it's working for us in the form of joy and success and prosperity, then why would we ask anybody else to buy into it? But if it's true, if there is a heaven and a Savior and he's worth following, and that means we're willing to sacrifice our lives, then it shows other people that what we believe is real. 
And finally, and I like this one, it frustrates Satan when we will not walk away from the truth. I would much rather tell you something than read it to you. But I thought I'd end today with a word from another Paul. I just quoted the Apostle Paul. I'd like to read to you an email from my friend Paul. If you'll allow me, just listen. This is from my friend Paul. He says, I was born March 5th, 1966 in a hospital in Beirut, Lebanon. Paul's about this tall. I was given up for adoption because my family was very poor and I did not have the means to, to, they didn't have the means to raise me. In the Middle East, families do not give up their children for adoption. This was unheard of. A few days later, a missionary family came to the hospital to adopt two children. I was handpicked by P.V. Zug and his wife, Betty. They had adopted a premature baby boy four years earlier that was not expected to live. And now they were back to adopt another boy and a baby girl. I was taken home that day with another baby girl who they named Diana. I can't imagine where I would be today if if a godly family had not picked me. I know when I turned 18, I would have been required to serve in the military, and more than likely, I would have been killed or injured during the Civil War that appears to be never-ending. I am reminded that the Bible speaks of never being at peace in the Middle East until Christ returns. My new parents had built a five-story building in Beirut, which had a church on the first floor, a school on the second and third floor, the pastor's home on the fourth floor, and our home on the fifth floor. Every building built in Lebanon required to have a basement and an air raid shelter. I'm thankful we had that when the Civil War started in 1975. I will never forget that morning. I was woken by gunfire and rockets flying and bombs. We all jumped out of the bed and ran down to the basement. Within a few hours, we had approximately 300 people in the basement. They told my dad they felt safe because God was in this place. In 1976, all Americans were evacuated from Lebanon, so we came to the USA and were visiting the churches that supported the mission work. We stayed stateside for about six months and then went back to Lebanon. We were again required to leave the country in 1978, so we came to the US again and lived in California for a few months. My dad knew he was called to be a missionary, so we packed up everything and started our journey back to Lebanon in 79. We could not fly into the country because the airport was closed. So we had our vehicle shipped to Brussels, Belgium. We flew over and picked up the car and we were halfway around and started the journey from Belgium to Lebanon. One evening as we were driving through Turkey, we were passing a large truck. As we were halfway around the truck, a passenger bus topped the hill in front of us. My older brother John was driving and had no choice but to put the car in the left ditch. Unfortunately, the bus driver was thinking the same thing. We hit the bus head on. All I remember is waking up to people screaming at me in Turkish. I got out of the car with my dog. My dad had already taken my sister Diana and younger brother Daniel out of the car. So everyone was out of the car except my mother. I looked at her and saw a smile on her face. My dad checked her and told us that she was in heaven. We were all taken to a local hospital by several people in their personal cars. My older brother John and I were not injured. My younger brother Daniel had facial injuries. My sister Diana had facial injuries as well. My dad had a a suitcase scalp at the top of his head. I will never forget the screaming and crying as they sewed up everyone without anesthesia. We were all able to stay in the hospital, even our dog. I can still remember us all in one room quoting Psalm 123. 
The following few days were very stressful, but God was in control. The police came and arrested my older brother since he was driving the car and somebody died. My dad was able to reach the U.S. Embassy in Istanbul and they were able to get him out of jail. As soon as we were able to leave and travel, we called a flight to the U.S. We had my mom's body shipped to Odessa, Texas, where we buried her. My dad's faith never faltered. He had no intention of coming off the mission field. He rented an apartment in Arlington across the street from Bethel Baptist Church, the school where we attended. And my dad continued visiting supporting churches around the area and would go back to the Middle East during the summer months. God is always in control and had a reason for what happened. One afternoon during chapel at the school, God started tugging on my heart. I'd never accepted Christ as my Savior. God spared my life several times. It was now my turn to surrender to Him. Fast forward several years, my dad was getting older and starting to suffer from dementia. We knew it was time for someone else to take over the 50 years mission field work he'd done. The entire family and the church prayed for a successor. We had no idea that God would call one of our family members. My niece and her husband accepted God's call to continue the wish and work. He closes, my dad had taken my niece and her husband over to the Middle East several times and introduced them to all 12 pastors in Egypt and two pastors in Lebanon. After he felt they had a good handle on the work, he came back to the States and was living with my sister in Dallas. On April 6, 2007, a few days after he returned from the Middle East, my dad went to his doctor about a cough he could not shake. They put him in the hospital for good measure. They said he had an upper respiratory infection and wanted to keep him a few days. On April 8th, Easter Sunday, my nephew was in the room with my dad. My dad asked for a cup of water. He drank it and took his last breath. He'd been telling us for several years he would love to go home on Easter Sunday. God granted his wish and welcomed my daddy home with open arms. P. Visa is like Jeremiah. You say, well, that's a nice email. Who's Paul? Paul lives in Anderson. He's the architect that designed this building. Is there some stuff in your life that's unattractive? Maybe undeserved? Maybe unpleasant? Can you imagine this man losing his wife on a Turkish highway? Enduring civil war, moving back and forth from the States? All the while not knowing he was raising a young man who would become a successful architect in Anderson, South Carolina that would design a worship center where hundreds and hundreds of people hear the word of God. All the stuff that you're frustrated with, that's the stuff you have to trust in. 